You're listening to a 3CR podcast at 3cr.org.au. 3CR is an independent community radio station with a commitment to radical social change. And we need your support to keep going. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate to donate to our June station appeal. And thanks for keeping truly independent, community-owned media alive. We can look at um, so many different communities who are impacted right now because of environmental racism. And if we don't name it as such, we could end up seeing an entire movement only talking about this issue in one way. If we do want the social change, if we do want systemic change, we all need to work together because a lot of these issues, again, are created by colonialism and capitalism. And this goes along with. Um, climate change. And so we all need to really work together, point out the flaws and call out all the different flaws and racism and colorism that's in all of our communities so that we can all work together. We really need that right now. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott. I'd like to pay my respects to country and to all the elders, past and present, who've been part of the struggle for so long for sovereignty and self-determination. Later in the show today, we'll hear three Extinction Rebellion activists speaking on a panel about the representation of people of colour in the climate justice movement. But first, we'll hear from Patrice Cullors, a climate justice and decarceration activist who's also well-known as one of the original founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. And Patrice is being interviewed here just a few weeks ago by Kristen Hamilton from Zero Hour about the impacts of environmental racism. Today's audio was recorded with thanks during a virtual event organised for Earth Day this year by Climate Strike and Stop the Money Pipeline Coalitions. I'll just like start by saying that I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and like I've been following your work for a very long time and as a black woman in like the climate movement it's very hard to be heard in a lot of spaces Um, and I feel very inspired by your work so thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. So yeah I think we could just start if you'd be able to tell me a little bit about like all the work that you've done with Black Lives Matter and other organizations and stuff. Sure. I think it's um, important that I just start by naming that the first work that I ever came into in relationship to social justice work was climate change. For the first six years of my organizing work, I was focused on really challenging the auto industry in Los Angeles, the city that I live in and where auto is king, really pushing for the reducing of greenhouse gases, learning about the uh, science of the tailpipe and how toxic it is, and then teaching it to the community that I grew up in, mostly Black people and brown people. And so my foundation is um, climate change and environmental justice work. And as I grew and into my own politicization, much of my work started to be centered around policing and over-policing and over-incarceration and mass incarceration in my community. So uh, before I ever started Black Lives Matter, I actually started an organization called Dignity and Power Now, a local grassroots organization that focuses specifically on issues around incarceration and the sheriff's department, And then after that, one year later, Alicia Opal and I started Black Lives Matter. 
And when we started Black Lives Matter, we really were starting it as like an online community to kind of discuss the issues of racism and anti-Black racism in our communities. Uh, but we really quickly realized that Black Lives Matter was not just about an online community, that it needed to be something that we um, massified for the globe and that it was something that people can use in their everyday organizing work, a part of our protests. And so you'll see the early protests that there's a bunch of Black Lives Matter signs with a hashtag uh, because we believed that the organizing wasn't just about being online and digital, but also being in the streets and showing up and challenging elected officials. The last set of work that I've done in, in, in the last several years has been to really call for a feasibility study so that we can decarcerate our overcrowded jails. So that's the work that I'm doing spans from from a very beginning of climate change work to now, which is very focused on mass incarceration, over policing. And it's not a common conversation, but the creations of jails and prisons is a huge environmental issue. And we really should be thinking about the development of jails and prisons and the footprint that it leaves as a really toxic footprint. Yeah, it's really important that we, you know, address social issues as well and talk about mass incarceration and how it is sort of like um, modern day slavery almost. Um, So I guess we could talk about our Blackness and femininity as a feminist. I think it's like really important for like women to be leading a climate movement or, you know, any movement in general, especially Black women. And it's really awesome for me to be working with so many um, Black women in my organization. So how does your Blackness and femininity inform your approach to this work as a whole? Sure. I mean, I think I always have seen my Blackness as a form of of really uh, bringing people together. And I think as, as a feminist, also making sure that um, all of our movements have a deeply intersectional analysis. That is um, really critical to me. I think when we started all of our organizations and movements as women, as women of color and as Black women specifically, we realized that uh, Black women are often doing the labor, but not receiving any credit. And oftentimes they were doing the labor, but they were also, their work was stolen. And so it's, I think it's super critical that we lift up Black women leadership, because the reality is, is that Black women have always been the architects of movements. I mean, that's just true from across the board, but they never get the praise for the work that they did or the labor that they implemented in the movement. So for me, much of my work is recognizing who is at the forefront and why they're doing that work and making sure we are lifting them up. But also I think Black women have a particular way that we do the work. It's a way in which um, we are really interested in the whole. We're really interested in building out a community versus building an empire. And I think when we often see Um, the way patriarchy works, especially on men. Men are interested in building out themselves in an empire. And women are interested in building out community and freedom. And that's a generalization for sure. You know, I think there's some women that can be patriarchs and there's some men that can be feminist. But the way we're socialized is very different. Women are socialized to take care of everybody and men are socialized to take care of themselves and then perhaps other people will be taken care of as well. And so I think as we're developing our movements, you see the difference in the quality 
of how our movements are being shaped. And I think that matters. Yeah, I want to ask, just in terms of like women and Black women, especially not getting like the credit or not being recognized, outside of just like the racial implications, do you think the socialization is like the expectation that we do that? And that's part of why we don't get that? Sure. Yeah, I think that femme labor is disposable labor. It's a labor that is not to be praised. It's a labor that's to be seen as, quote, natural. Why would you praise something that someone does naturally? You breathe naturally, so why would you praise breath? So people assume that Black women in particular, what we do naturally is nurture. That's not true. We're actually socialized to be that way. And this type of socialization is often a violent socialization to be that way, right? It's not about encouragement. It's about forcing us to be a particular way to serve a particular vision that's often not our vision. And so, yeah, I absolutely think that the, many of the reasons why we don't get praise is because why? Why would you praise us if that's what we're supposed to be doing? Right. And like when we talk about like the root causes of climate change, we talk about racism, colonialism, capitalism, and the patriarchy. And a lot of people have problems with like, when we say like the patriarchy, they're like, how could the patriarchy be one of the root causes of climate change? But it's 100% goes into that mindset of like building an empire instead of building a community, you know, like doing things for yourself and like feeding into that capitalistic mindset of everything is a resource instead of like being able to build something up from the ground. So what do you think are some primary factors that can cause society to believe that Black people don't care about climate change? Well, society thinks that Black people don't care about a lot of things. They think we don't care about ourselves. Let's talk about the concept of Black and Black crime. They don't think we care about our health. This is a classic, classic, this is, this is what we call gaslighting at the sort of macro level. It's telling a people that because of their poverty, because of their health conditions, because of racism, it's our fault. And so what you're hearing, uh, so this, this myth that Black people don't care about climate change, we don't care about our communities, is, is a lie. We are the, always the first ones to show up for ourselves. We're also often the last ones to show up for ourselves. And we're also often the only ones to show up for ourselves. And so what I would challenge people when they say that Black people don't care about climate change, I would challenge people around their ideas of what Black people are doing in the world and how Black people are relating. I also, you know, I often hear that from white people mostly when they're in their own white bubbles, when they're like, why are there any Black people here talking about this issue? When in fact, there's probably a whole other meeting happening with a bunch of Black people trying to figure out how to take care of themselves. Um, And just because Black people aren't aren't in the mostly white meeting, it's probably because it's a mostly white meeting. And so I often hear that claim from people that aren't Black people. Um, I hear that claim from people who've internalized an idea of what care looks like and how Black people care about things. And so I think it's always important to challenge and push people when they start to make generalizations of what Black people care about and what we don't care about. So I'll just like um, ask the question just to like talk about like the intersectionality of social justice and climate justice and like why you think it's true that climate justice is a social justice issue and like where that narrative and perspective comes into, into like play in like the POC communities. It was either 2001 or 2002, maybe even 2003, that I went to the 
second annual People of Color Summit on Environmental Justice. And I remember going to that summit and meeting people from around the country, including Hawaii and Alaska, um, mostly all POC communities from Black folks to Brown folks to Native folks to Asian folks. And actually it was a global conference. It wasn't just because um, there was, we had um, translation and everything. So it was people from around the world and it was mostly folks of color. And we were all talking about the issues of environmental racism on our communities and the impact environmental racism had on our communities. And we were differentiating ourselves from the quote, environmentalists who often are thinking about environmental justice from a very specific perspective, which is we have to save the whales, we have to save the tigers, we have to save the dolphins, which is incredibly important. We do have to save that part of our ecosystem. But it was also often a group, mostly groups of white people who didn't actually care about saving the health and wellness of black people and brown people. And so this conference was one of the first places where I got to see other people who look like me that were fighting for the environment and that were really interested and in looking at the intersections of how um, uh, building a jail and prison in a community was actually impacting that community's health and wellness or um, talking about fracking in an inner city neighborhood or talking about living next to a, a huge oil refinery and how those places are usually placed in poor neighborhoods that have people who are mostly people of color. And I think when we're talking about climate change and this current iteration of this really beautiful moment where climate change is being popularized, we have to be um, mindful of who's being seen as the leaders of this movement because the reality is there's always, always been folks of color and Black women at the lead of these movements because it's for, that we're the first people to get asthma, we're the first people to have severe allergies, we're the first people to get cancer because of these places in our neighborhoods. And we're also the last people to be talked about in these spaces. So when people are you know, showing up for environmental justice um, rally or a climate change rally, look at who's around. Be mindful of who you're talking about, how you're talking about it, and make sure that the conversation isn't just about one type of issue, but that it's about all the issues and how they intersect because it's so incredibly important. We can look at um, so many different communities who are impacted right now because of environmental racism. And if we don't name it as such, we could end up seeing an entire movement only talking about this issue in one way. That's like, has been so eye-opening for me as an organizer and the evolution of like what fighting for the climate means, like not fighting for like the trees and the bees and the birds, but like also fighting for the people and like people of color and like talking about environmental racism and the intersectionalities. So it's really cool to like see how that has changed over the years. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the community who's done it best is the indigenous community. They're the first, I would say, first um, fighters of environmental justice and have saw, seen the most devastating impacts that colonialism and capitalism and patriarchy has had on the land that they inhabited and that was taken from them. And then they were sequestered off into, you know, many of them into reservations. And I think it's really important as we are, you know, talking about 
environmental justice, environmental racism, and climate change that we're talking about indigenous communities who uh, were probably the first warners, you know, the first people to warn us that if we continue on this route, what will happen to our places, of our sacred land, they see this land as sacred. And as someone who was able to be at, in Dakota, at the No Dapple protests and spend a lot of time there, there's something really powerful about reminding ourselves about the original people of this land and, and the work that they've done to try to steer the ship in the right direction, even with our national governments not caring. And that was Patrice Cullors, climate justice activist and founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, being interviewed a few weeks ago by Kristen Hamilton from Zero Hour. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Coming up next, we'll hear from Fiona Jarvis and Cynthia Leung at Extinction Rebellion in New York and Chrissy Oliver-Mays, who's based with Extinction Rebellion in Charlotte. Hi, everyone. This is going to be a panel uh, or discussion about activists and people of color in the climate movement. So I am Fiona Jarvis. I'm a 15-year-old climate activist in New York City, and I work with Extinction Rebellion Youth. Hi, my name is Chrissy Oliver Mays. I am one of the co-coordinators for Extinction Rebellion Youth Charlotte. Hi, my name is Cynthia Leung. I am a 16-year-old climate activist and organizer based in New York City, and I work with Extinction Rebellion Youth in New York City, and I'm excited to be part of this discussion. So um, I want to get the ball rolling in this discussion, asking you guys about where do you guys find the line, the defining like differences between what is tokenization and what is, um, you know, like reasonable representation and of diversity. Although there are like a couple of POC just sprinkles in the media as activists, I genuinely don't think that a lot of these reporters or even the people that have the authority and power to listen to these people and take action, I don't think that they're literally just listening to what these POC activists are talking to them about. Because for some reason, even when we do have activists of color talking about their own experiences, why we need more POC, people aren't actually listening. They're not taking what they're saying into account and they're not using what they're saying. And we need media to be working with people that actually have important opinions so that it's addressed and that it's being taken seriously by society. Mm -hmm. They're not just faces and bodies who can yeah. be used, like, hey, we have a person of color, like, they're people, they're real people. Yeah. A hundred percent, and I think, like, that's a great point. I feel like POC people, like, if you're a POC, you get hired to do, like, POC stuff. It's not just, like, regular stuff. You're, They're like, oh, well, you kind of become that, like, token a hundred percent, and, like, the media goes to you as, like, that, oh, that's that one Black person we know who can speak about this, or, like, that's that one Asian American we know that can speak about that. And that becomes such an issue because, like, you have a lot more to speak on. Of course, we care about the things that are happening in our community, but that shouldn't be the only thing that people look to us for. And so I think that becomes a huge part with, like, tokenization in the media. And even being in it, you may not realize it at the time um, because it's this really kind of awkward, weird thing to just be like, am I being used for my like intellectual abilities and like people understand that I really am educated about what I'm talking about or am I being used because like my skin color or like where my parents are from or like just my background um and I think that's 
that's such a weird place to be in the movement um, and something that definitely needs to be addressed more often. Do you guys think that there is a homogenous experience of people of color, of activists of color? Do you think that there's a string that ties us all together? And from my experience, I definitely do not think that just because you are POC, you have a homogenous experience. Because, for example, although we do all live in this one oppressive structure that was created by white men, capitalism and colonialism, we do all have our own privileges. Like, for example, I'm East Asian. I do not have the same experiences as someone who is South Asian, someone who is Muslim American, someone who is African American, Black American, Latinx American. And I do need to acknowledge my own privileges. And by acknowledging my privilege, I can also utilize it to raise awareness about other um, important issues. Like I don't see, for example, Asian Americans fighting for Black Lives Matter. I don't see more Asian Americans in the climate movement, and it's really problematic, or at least the media is not covering enough Asian Americans. And is there a reason why the media isn't covering enough POC activists? I I just, I genuinely think that sometimes we do need POC solidarity and we need POC unification, but I don't think the media is going to be working with activists like us to be actually taking and using this information and create systemic change. Um, I 100% agree. I think that media plays such a huge role and everybody does have like their own unique experiences. And that's okay to a certain degree. I definitely believe that we should have some solidarity and it's okay that we don't have the same experience because that is what makes us like unique and what, 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 like what we have to bring to the table is different from each other. These activists who are people of color are out there. It's not like they they just don't exist. There's so many of them. And it would be easy for me to name a few white activists off the top of my head. But if somebody was like, please name like five Latinx and five Asian American and maybe even five Black American, like climate activists, I would struggle. It's so readily and easily available for us to see white activists. Like the media should have them out there at the forefront because they're just as important Um, What they're saying is just as loud as any white activist, and it has just as much power. I would argue that it's potentially, like, in some situations, it's more, more valuable just because of the nature of the climate crisis. You know, we call it, we call it climate justice because the climate crisis disproportionately affects people of color and communities of color. So I want to ask you guys how you feel about, like, the, the focus that's put on the arrestable actions of XR. And I know that there has been some distinctions between XR youth and XR adults uh, in terms of how we focus on the arrestable actions. So I feel like even XR adults, they see the end goal of joining XR is to be arrested, which is extremely problematic because even in the UK, there are issues with police brutality. Like I saw this article about how South Asians And Black people in the UK also have issues with police brutality. And in the US, we we definitely have issues with police brutality. And there's privilege to being able to take part in direct action. In XR, they use direct action and they make sure that big names are arrested so that it's almost like they're spreading awareness to kind of support marginalized communities. But In reality, from an etic perspective, if you don't know what XR is, it seems like a bunch of just privileged kids just getting arrested, um, being really 
like oblivious that there are communities that can take part in direct action, which like I think that XR could like adults could also address. But again, when we are allowed to take part in direct action and when we are allowed to get arrested, we have to acknowledge our privileges. And again, like there should be like different outlets for POC to engage in climate activism that aren't just getting arrested. And that's what XR really needs to address because this movement, well, in many areas, I would say it's still not inclusive. It excludes certain people. If we want more people to join this movement, we have to start changing our different ways. I know for Charlotte, when we planned our first kind of arrestable action, we went in with our eyes like closed pretty much. Like we did not have an NVDA training that addressed like this action is not going to look the same for every person. And that if you're a person of color, you may be treated differently. It wasn't until our second, no, after our first arrestable action, which was not successful, we were not arrested at all. No police came to us at all. (laughs) Um, We had an MVDA training and Ollie and I just kind of sat there with our mouths to the ground because we were like, how could we be so ignorant and not see this issue and like present it to everybody before we even allowed allowed somebody to like join in an action that could have been arrestable. And in that NVDA training, we talked about, of course, discrimination and how everybody is treated differently. But more than that, we had like actual real life examples. And it was shocking to me that we could have put our members in that type of situation. And so I definitely think that's something that everybody needs to be educated on. And it's something that we can't close our eyes to and we need to focus on. I guess kind of wrapping up now, um, any of you guys have anything else to say or anything to plug? I think just XR in general, it's honestly a great organization to be a part of. I think there's so much community that happens here. And although we have these issues, it's awesome to be able to have a platform to talk about it. And I think that speaks highly of the people that we work with and the organization as a whole, because it would be a completely different story if this was occurring and and nobody was even talking about it. Um, At this point, really, again, we do need to see solidarity and unity especially because if we do want the social change, if we do want systemic change, we all need to work together because a lot of these issues, again, are created by colonialism and capitalism. And this goes along with um, climate change. And so we all need to really work together, point out the flaws and call out all the different flaws and racism and colorism that's in all of our communities so that we can all work together. We really need that right now. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. This week on the show, we heard from Patrice Cullors, climate justice activist and founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, being interviewed by Kristen Hamilton from Zero Hour, as well as Extinction Rebellion's Fiona Jarvis, Cynthia Leung, and Chrissy Oliver Mays speaking on a panel about the representation of people of colour in the climate justice movement. Today's audio was recorded with thanks during a virtual event organised for Earth Day this year by Climate Strike and Stop the Money Pipeline Coalitions. 
You can find our Earth Matters podcast, including today's show, at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service, we'd love you to subscribe and why not give us a review to help spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced with the support of 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. You can also find us on your socials. So that's all for this week. Tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Thank you, those people who have no land rights haven't got justice, but neither do those people who have land rights have justice. You're listening to Community Radio Network around Australia, brought to you by 3CR Community Radio. So stay tuned as we bring you news, live updates, music and interviews with Aboriginal people from around the country. The only free body we have is the Aboriginal government on the grassroots and the Aboriginal Embassy on the lawns outside the old Parliament House. We will not go away. And as that stone rests in that mountain, and as our spirit rests in this country, and over this country, we will not go away. Neither shall our power pass. And that's here forever, until justice comes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.